0: Son of Dave joins me on episode 33. Originally from Winnipeg, Canada, he enjoyed pop chart success for 10 years with folk rock band Crush Test Dummies. He then moved to London and pursued a solo career. After two albums, he decided to quite literally go it alone and became the old singing, old dancing, solo performer that is the Son of Dave act. While doing so, he quite possibly invented a brand new genre of harmonica, incorporating beatboxing and loop pedals to complement his strong rhythmic harmonica playing. His catalogue of albums are littered with songs he has composed by dreaming up melodies and the harmonica. Son of Dave has thrilled audiences around the world with his cartoony bluesman persona, dragging his suitcase full of tricks behind him. His one-man show has got to be seen to be believed. Oh, and he's had his Covid jab now too. and welcome to the podcast hey uh, thanks for having me in first of all we we'll start with your name your your father really is called dave yeah he is he is dave it was the 70s
1: i grew up calling him dave rather than dad i think i started calling him dad sometime in my 20s and uh, it came up from some people calling me son of dave yeah but man i've been over here 25 years do you know what i went for uh, the covid shot just yesterday they've given me a shot asthma for the wind I had a form that I had to sort of look at and fill out. And it told me my age on the top, top of the sheet. It said, you're, you're 54 years old. And I thought, they've got that wrong, man. I'm 53. Then I looked at, you know, well, they've got the birth date right. They must have done the math wrong. And I sat there and I did the math. And I did the math like three or four times. And I realized that I've just celebrated two 53rd birthdays in a row, I think.
0: I lost count. Well, so you've had your COVID jab. How was that? You might want to encourage people to get out there and have the jab. Any, any bad side effects so far?
1: No, none at all. I encourage people to go out and get it and also to buy Microsoft products.
0: <laughs> so you were, as you say there, you're originally from Canada, from Winnipeg in Canada. What was it like musically uh, around Winnipeg when you were growing up? Winnipeg, well, it's a smallish city in the prairies in Canada.
1: It's a long drive to any other city. Uh, you know, you're going to drive for eight hours to get to another city, and, and that's not a nice one. You might get to Minneapolis or something in 10 hours. That said, even the vaudevillians used to come up to Winnipeg. It was – they weren't used to these long drives, and they would they would come up to the vaudeville theaters in Winnipeg. It, it had – it was – it saw its chaplains and Buster Keatons and, and – uh, and and all all the folks that were doing vaudeville come up, and then it saw its share of musicians coming up from uh, as they would tour across the northern United States. The American musicians it it also got its um, its players come up from Chicago when the when the blues thing was happening. Now, you know, not all it it trickled up. When I was a kid, there were blues bands in town, and they would have been you know maybe my sisters they were walking around with bell bottoms and bare feet. And there would be guys, that, yeah, a little older than them, already playing in the bars. I guess that's when, early in mid-70s. I remember that far back. And the the blues the blues scene was already kicking off in Winnipeg. Winnipeg then also developed, around that time, it, re- it developed a folk festival called, imaginatively enough, the Winnipeg Folk Festival. It was a pearl. It was the best festival in Canada for decades. I mean, we had uh, Pete Seeger and Bill Monroe and... and Man, I mean, it, it all came through there, and all the great hippie acts. And but uh, for the blues, the, I tweaked on when I heard James Cotton, and it was I uh, maybe seventy six or seventy eight or something.
0: But this, uh, he played at the Winnipeg he Festival. This, them, it, yeah, it?
1: the big stage of the folk festival there, and, and it's uh, I, don't, I don't know f- uh, four or five thousand people who feel just absolutely transfixed and and dancing her heinies off. He played that hundred percent Cotton album. Fever, uh, Boogie Thing, Creeper. (laughs) I had a harmonica. I used to noodle on it. I could play a couple sort of jigs and reels and... You know, follow the little fold-up instructions that came in the box, and my dad showed me a couple of things. I didn't know it's
0: it's pure sexual power until I saw Cotton do that. Yeah, no, I saw James Cotton play. Yeah, a high energy act, and loved a lot of his songs. Yeah, so he turned you onto harmonica, like you said, you had one, but uh, he's the one who really sort of got you interested, and then you started playing blues. Then, yeah, you? as a kid, eh? and then I just found anyone that was playing it at the festival. I'd go and I'd go and seek it out.
1: Oh, I started with a. A handful of records only. There was 100% Cotton, a Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee uh, compilation, and then uh, I had a couple records by John Hammond Jr. I just fell in love with his his vibe. One or two others, and then that was it. You know, I kept buying records, but all kinds of music. But I wouldn't buy blues records. I would hear it in the bars. And by, when, by the time I was a teenager, I was, I was going in the Sunday jams. They'd sneak me in, they'd get me on stage. And I could play with these guys. All the, the classic blues songs, I heard uh, the live versions of. That was it. It, it wasn't played on the radio uh, in, in Winnipeg. You know, you had rock FM and it, you wouldn't hear much. You, you had to go to a record shop and maybe ask around. I could get it, but I just sucked it up by hearing it and playing it uh, in mostly a live situation after, after just yeah. having two or three records this shines through now because I have a complete lack of discipline and knowledge. I don't know who did what and I can't attribute any lick to any player. I'm a bum. I'm telling you, I don't understand this stuff because I never did my homework. Maybe, maybe uh, 10, 20 years ago, I started collecting singles, slowly piecing together a bit of a knowledge about, about these players and, and the, the, the evolution of the harmonica
0: but i mean it's interesting you know people learn in different ways so you say you learn not much from records but going to, to jams and jamming in bars and playing along with other people and obviously hearing some harmonica and playing along with some records but yeah and did you learn any other instruments when you were young and you know you sent for piano lessons or anything like that
1: well again my natural lack of discipline i taught myself some guitar and mandolin rudimentary stuff and right away i was you know just it was all about having fun and and playing bands uh writing some songs not really know what what i was doing and then now going to college then uh the the summer the band that i was uh, sort of playing with a weekend band uh started to write some really good songs and uh, and that took off kept me on the road for 10 years playing with them still not doing the right kind
0: of homework (laughs) So this is crash test dummies that you're you're alluding to there, yeah. Mm, so uh, yeah. a successful Canadian folk rock band, you know, we're pretty well known, yeah. So you had a successful career with those guys, and I think you, you played what guitar, mandolin, and hall, harmonica with that band as well, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's right. I tried to stick the harmonica wherever I could get it in. It worked well for the first record or two, uh, and then afterwards, it was I was a bit of a sore thumb in the band. Because uh you know the other, the other players had everything covered, so I'd do odd bits here and there and, and they were kind enough to keep me on <laughs> for for the four records and ten years that, of the um, the high high time of that when I'd go home I'd, I'd work on my own uh, insane kind of blues recordings and and stuff, and I made a a couple of quite unusual records on my downtime, but there was a lot of touring.
0: in quite a unique position as a on the podcast here and as a harmonica player having been in what was quite a commercially successful band i don't know how commercially successful but i'd certainly heard of crash test dummies in the uk when i was younger so i mean you were then in the sort of full-blown music industry yeah with uh, proper record labels and uh, proper uh, and all that yeah so there was that was an advantage to you I, I will get on to maybe you quite like getting away from that side of things but how was that you know working in the sort of full-blown music industry
1: um it was dynamic uh, when it was over i started completely at, at ground zero again there was no connections left over the music industry was changing crashing it, it was quite bizarre i mean i have a few friends that i kept associates comrades colleagues uh, f- from back then uh some people that i can still ring up and and uh maybe get a job job from and, and that kind of thing or who can help me with a little pr or something but uh but really, it was starting from the bottom up, absolutely. It wasn't, you know, I wouldn't go out and get a gig using the name of that band to bring fans in. It was just not like that. I was just, you know,
0: I was just the harmonica player from that band. Would you say your main instrument was the harmonica with that band? Because I know, obviously, you did play mandolin and, and some guitar with them as well. Yeah, that's right, mandolin guitar. And I was doing lots of percussion. Um, it was all little percussion station
1: I, I i built for it so mm-hmm. yeah i was pretty much a entertaining guy on stage right really really good gig to have i'm very lucky to to have it a lot of a lot of it is about entertaining an audience in front of you i did my own share of vaudeville and stuff I used to play in a medicine show in my in my younger years 18 19 i was in this uh horse-drawn wagon the side would fold down and we'd go out and crack people up <laughs> so uh, I love all that stuff and I did the I was studying theater uh, since I was a little kid. So just having it up on stage is my is my first go-to talent. The uh the big band took me 10 years and
0: uh a little longer than I foresaw sort of uh, playing uh, someone else's songs in a way. How did it compare working in a kind of commercial band like that to working in the sort of one-man band that you're in now?
1: There was a lot of
0: money to be made. We sold 8
1: million records uh, or CDs eh, back then. Wow. So it was the height of that stuff. A lot of people were making a lot of money in the the industry. Like I say, I saw ridiculous opulence. But we were not an opulent band. And uh, I made enough to get a a little flat in London. And then there was a few years where I was was living off that money.
0: And some still comes in. So you moved over to the UK into London in uh, in 1998. Why the decision to come to move to London? I fell in love and I stayed. I mean, I fell in love with the place and the people
1: and the opportunities. And yeah, it was still still an older feel to to London then. And and, uh, and I loved being able to just go to get on a, a train or a, a, a you know a short boat ride and be, be somewhere in Europe. It was brilliant.
0: When you, I believe you started out uh, just busking in London and then is, was that a sort of decision then you wanted to continue your music as, as your one-man band? Did you just decide to just bus for fun and they decided to pick up on it? So what was the decision there?
1: I started out making two really fancy and bizarre records with uh, bits of studio gear and, and things that I'd pieced together
0: and uh, and buddies I'd hired to help engineer it. So this is your Wild West Show album in nineteen ninety nine. Is that that's your first one? Uh, uh, right, and an album called Oh uh, One. Yeah, an Oh One in uh, two thousand. Yeah,
1: that's right. And I, so I made those, and I, but I realized I tried to tour them briefly in Canada, and it was, it, it was you know it was twenty people showing up, and we had a tour bus and and great musicians, and it was you know the twenty people their jaw would drop, but it was just shoveling money out a window it's just ridiculous (laughs) i realized wow i'm really starting from from the beginning i gotta scale down man so back here i went busking like you said that's right back here i just went i realized i've got to start all over again what do i want to do i want to make music that to make people how can i do that by going into the studio Nah. I should just go out on the street and do it and busk like I did when I was a teenager
0: and that gave me great joy yeah. so so those first two albums just to touch on briefly the Wild West show and the, the O1 album like you say you had a band in those yeah? you've got other, instrument, other instruments on there you've got singers on there so these were albums that you sort of produced did you and you wrote yourself and composed them
1: yeah i liked, i've always been one for for writing a, a song and experimenting with uh, recordings but uh yeah it it came time to really sink or swim and find a find a way to be useful rather than dropping off demo tapes it was a bit of a reckoning like i have to do something very realistic to to make myself useful and let me try this i'll take a microphone a little battery operated amp a bullet mic uh out there with a a shaker and just hit the street. And uh I quickly thought, okay, I'm playing harmonica and, and, and singing and stuff. People are looking at me odd. And it just came to me. Just start thumping some beats into the microphone. And and as soon as I did mix that with with the harmonica, the uh So it's just it's just rhythmic I wasn't thinking in terms of hip hop or anything I was just trying to put some more rhythm and punch into it as soon as I did that
0: coins come into the box you've um, you know you potentially invented a new genre of harmonica though. yeah, I mean were you the first to sort of do this beatboxing harmonica together that you're aware of
1: I mean, there were probably 20 guys doing it exactly the same time but we were unaware of each other as far as I know I was the first to, to uh, certainly the first to be re- recording it you know right after that i would, people said come and play at my club uh you know just these open nights where you get up and do three tunes so right away i, I screwed the tunes together and i got myself a cheap little looping pedal to to run the the, the beats underneath it and it grew really fast within a year i was doing like a full set and and into the studio to
0: do it so i think i was the first to to record the stuff Yeah, no, I'm fantastic. I think you can definitely take the pride in inventing this genre. Your live show, I want to make this comparison between your live show and your albums. We'll get into your your sort of solo albums now, which it sounds like from the old two. But when you're, performing you're sort of layering up the sounds with the uh, with the loop boxes and you've got you're doing lots of kind of um, wailing kind of a great sort of effective minimal lyrics and what, what point did you see you know did it develop over time about you using uh, loop pedals and things like this and laying up your sound in that way
1: yeah the loop pedal came pretty early on <laughs> there was there's busking where you can only do so much to to get in and play a set you know to hold people's attention for half an hour to an hour or, or more to hold them at, attention, I knew I can't I can't do that without without uh, some cheap box, <laughs> you know. And it's either drum machines or or other musicians. So uh, I, I figured the looping pedal. So I, right away I was uh, I was incorporating the the loops in there.
0: When you started out working solo and using the loop pedal, was part of that decision was, you know, you wanted to work solo so you had complete control? Or or was it more to do with the fact that you could take what little money was available from the gigs to uh, if you just work solo? I can't say that the more for me attitude
1: wasn't just about keeping the money. It wasn't just about having full control either. It was just a natural thing to do. People loved it and I had fun. And yeah, it's I'm free to, to, to make people chuckle in between tunes and I don't have to play the same set list and I don't have to play the song the same way twice it's real freedom but it, it also comes with fear fear like I had not had before and still I am nervous before every concert like really nervous sick not nothing like being in with a band it's it didn't have those kind of nerves, no.
0: You know, you're up there completely by yourself. You've got to entertain the crowd by yourself for your set. You know, that's that's a pretty uh, pretty daunting experience, isn't it? So how do you do that?
1: I don't know how I'm going to do it, but once you're up there, it uh, it comes pretty easy. Yeah, we all know repetition and practice. I don't have to be thinking too much about the uh, the pedals or that, and, and I know the shape of each tune. And I know there's there are little places in each song where i i can stretch time or change things around keeping myself amused
0: keeping myself fresh and then the, the audience audience gets that too it's probably worth now just giving an overview of, of what what sort of gear do you use in your shows to uh, you know to to make your sound
1: well there's a microphone in front of the face which is a, a normal uh vocal mic and then there's the there's the handheld mic and that goes into uh loop and octave pedals so that you can hum bass lines and and loop up beats which you're making through the... (laughs) Once the loops are going, then you can play over top or or add more or less. The the most important thing that I found, you know, other than just showing off with, with that stuff and jamming with myself, it's all about the song and always was, so the songs and the melody. You can impress people with a jam for about 15 seconds, 30 seconds, and then you need something that's important or feels important. You know, and that's that's where the song and the melody comes in.
0: Yeah, well, I remember I, when I first saw you, I was I was really kind of blown away by that you're up there by yourself. And it's, it was, a, you know, it's amazing what you create, the atmosphere and, and you're layering it up. But back then, uh, when you started using loop pedals and stuff, and I, I, I'm not so sure, but around the year 2000, I presume that was reasonably new technology at that point, was it?
1: The loop pedal was was pretty new. I think they were selling them to... To guitar players so that they could noodle along
0: with themselves. <laughs> so you were cutting edge.
1: So no, I don't I didn't know anybody else was using him. Yeah, I was the first one of the one of the early people on it. I think it actually suits beatbox so well.
0: So is beatboxing something that you already did or did you develop it as a, as a part, of, you know, when you decided to start putting it into your act?
1: The beatbox was, it just came to me while I was trying to, Box like I was saying, I wasn't. I wasn't into beatboxing at all. It just happened
0: uh, as a natural thing to to be doing while I was playing the harmonica. It's kind of like the Sonny Terry thing in a way, and not it with the whooping between. Is that where you sort of maybe got the original idea about? Yeah, the
1: and other people have played me things. eh? they've they've played me old uh, Sonny Boy recording as well, where he's he's clicking and then like woohoo! <coughs> oh, holy <hallelujah! coughs> <coughs> You know, uh, so. It wasn't totally unheard of. It comes naturally, but i, I think there's there's a thing of, about you know the boom I don't want it to sound like a drum machine. I don't want to sound like a hip hop record. I want it to sound you know human, so that's why I go boom boom because it's it's a human sound as opposed to something that imitates a you know drum and bass record you know the stuff that actual beatboxers do <laughs> i use it my own way I, I try to use it like just a rough kind of a little blues band behind me
0: so when you did start realizing that you know you were going to start using beatboxing did you know did you go to like beatboxing university or something then you know did you actually kind of try and study it properly or was it just a case of kind of picking up whatever worked for you as you went along
1: there's a through line here and that is that i lack discipline in every <laughs> respect uh <laughs> Over you know in the long run I'll end up knowing and having some skills and knowing some stuff but it ain't through sitting down and properly doing the homework. So no, I just mm-hmm. learned one sound and I'd get one sound and that'd last me six months. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. just my kick snare and hat and to, it's just learning kick snare and hat. It's just after a year or two I learned a new snare sound.
0: That's good to hear for someone like me. I'm quite anal, yeah. I feel I have to go away and study things, yeah. But it's, so it's quite a nice, you know, I think a lot of people get hung up on that. You know, they feel they have to go and learn stuff, yeah. But it was like you are saying, you're just kind of doing it as you go along. Maybe that's the better way to do it, yeah. And uh, people kind of stop themselves doing things in a lot of ways, don't they? Because they feel they're not ready for it.
1: Yeah. Or they're m- more polite than I am. Because, you know, I'll, before I know how to do something properly, I'll, I'll have it out and air it in public.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a very distinctive image you wear is it a fedora hat and you've got a big wide shouldered business suit on and, and uh, you've got quite quite a wacky persona your album covers you've got you know, these kind of cartoony kind of things so uh what about that image that you developed is that something you did from early on
1: yeah that just comes organically you start to wake up in the suits, eh? they
0: just mm-hmm. appear the life turns into a cartoon <laughs> for the audience's entertainment you know, again, it shows, you know, you need that image, don't you? You know, you've been very successful. You've got that one-man act. You know, you've got the image. You know, I think the image is important to that, isn't it?
1: You want to look, like any good blues man knows, you, you want to look a, a little bit sharp so that people can distinguish who's working and who's not. Who's there just to have a good time yeah. and who's actually at the office.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm working. I better dress up. Yeah, I mean, I agree. You see a lot of bands that are in the sort of T-shirt and jeans and you sort of think, yeah, you know, having an image and looking better is, is important, yeah. So so great. So moving on on a little bit more into your recording. So we talked about the first two recordings you did and then when you did the O2 album, was that a, uh, a solo album or at least more of a solo album than the first two? That was the record where there was a, when the one-man band thing started, isn't it? Yeah,
1: that's when the beatbox um, and harmonica... I took that into a studio with with a, a great fellow I met. And that's where we started to uh that's where I started to do that. The sort of most a lot of it live off the floor and then and some of it was um, multi-track and overtub a, b- a mixture of the two. And since then I've I've done the same thing. Also to keep, you know, people's entertainment uh, keep them um focused all the way listening through a record, ten fourteen tracks that's difficult if you're just going to sit there with a a guitar and sing. It can be done and it has been done, but but you know, the listening experience when you don't have any much to look at, if you're carrying on with your, with your day and just listening to a record, you know, you want to keep people's attention and and give them a little more to listen to. And and when you don't have so much to look at and and the wise cracks between songs, then you've got to throw a little more at it. And that's why in the studio I take more liberties than I do with just the one-man band show. And and some songs will be quite layered up and more complicated. And I, I love all that stuff, to be honest. I like writing songs and I like recording. I love it.
0: On that album, are you the only musician on there or did you have other, other musicians? And, and on your later albums too. First album, I think i had uh, a lady singer on a
1: couple of songs eh yeah i think uh, devil take my soul was on there, and that was of course with martina singing singing the chorus with me subsequent albums uh it's usually me i'm- qu- i'm i'm quite a, I'm quite selfish and i do i play a lot of the stuff but uh depending on the record we're nine ten records in now, and sometimes mm. i i i love to have uh a lot of players on an, on an album, and sometimes not.
0: A song on the O2 album is "The Devil Take My Soul," which was featured in a film. Yeah, as we, we like to say over here, or a movie the Americans uh, might say. Is, was it this one from this album? Because I know you recorded it on another album as well. So this is a, this was a movie with uh, with Robin Williams in. Yeah, so quite a big movie.
1: Yeah, they put that in a Robin Williams film. It's not folks' favorite Robin Williams film. <laughs> I don't think it got too good reviews. I took it as quite an honor anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, I've had the uh, songs go into TV shows and, and films not frequently enough because that actually pays some
0: bills. It's good, and it reaches people. So it's lovely. Everybody... Everyone wants a sink, as they call it. Yeah, we'll, we'll touch on the big one later on. Uh, we'll save that for people to hear about which TV show you did appear on. But on, on that all two album, you do, you do a, a quite a few blues songs, you know, pure blues songs. You do Manish Boy, where you're singing this kind of nice high pitched singing, uh, your usual funny take on the song, and then you've got Crossroads Rolling and Tumblr. So, quite a few blues songs on that one. <coughs>
1: Spell here? Those were two traditionals that I did on there, and I, I really took liberties with them as I was doing back then. I don't think i would be so rude now with, with songs that are so
0: holy in a way. I, I did really take the Mickey. <sighs> Well, I was saying you're modernizing the blues and giving it to a modern audience. So let's put it that way.
1: I don't know. I don't know. I'm not so sure. It was just. It was. It was odd. It's my way of doing things in in a playful way. Uh, I don't know about so modern. I, I don't think you could play that to anybody and think, yeah, that sounds really modern. <laughs> yeah. You know, because it yeah. doesn't. It sounds just odd. It's beatbox and strange. Re- it had a more modern, almost drum and bass. Rhythm, you know, gone down to the crossroads, down on my knees. Yeah, that's, I guess, modern, but a more s- syncopated or uh, stressful beat yeah. that, that a lot of people were hearing in maybe a drum and bass or jungle. But when you hear it like that, when you hear it just put in these really human terms, it it doesn't sound expensive. It sounds it still sounds like folk music in a way. And that was my idea that that you could just give a new life to it and just do it differently.
0: You talked about, you know, you like you are interested in in producing albums, going into the studio. Do you think you you took some time from you know, when you were in the Crash Test Dummies, you know, is that something you were able to, to draw on to help? You know, you're playing different instruments, that you're playing rhythmically, playing percussion, I think or or the help to develop your abilities.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All the the other instruments have, have been key. I, I kicked myself because I never, I didn't learn piano or touch the thing really until a couple of years ago. I realized that's, that's really what I was missing. I can play guitar and I can even write good lines on it, but I never love it. I think it needs to be back in the band and do its, do its thing back there. Like, you know, it needs to go, has that little sort of cheeky sound. But I don't think it should be front and center very often. Near, no, near as often it w- as it was for 30 years. <laughs> it, it had its time. Now, that doesn't mean that the harp, harp needs to be hog in front of center. What needs to be front and center is the song, eh? And the the, the music as a whole. And things can do their little their little voices in there. So I, I like playing and writing the guitar part, but I don't I don't love it. And I don't like to compose a song. I don't like to write on the guitar either because it inevitably takes you down these uh, roads that, that aren't even well-beaten paths. They're like eight-lane freeways. They're just – everybody goes that way. It's full of traffic. As soon as you start doing a riff on a guitar, it sounds like 20 other recordings or, or styles you've heard. So it doesn't inspire me so much.
0: But but what about the harmonica though? Because obviously your harmonica features very heavily, particularly in your show, but on your albums as well, and it's very central to the rhythms that you're playing on there. And all.
1: yeah, that's right. So I was writing, you know, many records worth of stuff. I was writing it starting on the harmonica because you start with a three note riff, and then you you uh, you improvise a a melody on top of that. You just pick it up and. <laughs> whether it's that or do something twice does it catch you and once you have this little melody curving along it could it be three note? it's one of the first son of dave one man band tunes that i wrote was like that i put that the same notes on the bass almost and the harp does that and it's just completely hypnotic and then a a similar v- melody forms in the vocal over top of that then you carve out parts not 12 bars but you carve out verse and chorus and Breakdown, middle, later, whatever happens after that verse and chorus, chunks of songs, so that you're returning to a bit that people can sing to, or that people can hum. Twelve bars is great for people playing together, and twelve bars is is great for some some songs, but it doesn't lend it so, itself so well to, uh, for people to either sing along or yeah it's just it's
0: different it's the 12 bars is is, is a particular form to itself you write lyrics to your songs as well and you they're usually your 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 songs are quite often sort of punctuated with you kind of doing these repeated phrases, which again is that sort of quite rhythmic hypnotic sort of approach that you have you know, you're building up these rhythmic layers, but also you get you can be quite political in what you're saying, maybe partly like you keep buying it for example on your recent uh, singles and is that something you've got in mind to try and make statements you wrestle with it, don't we eh I like to say often there's there's five
1: kinds of blues songs. There's the drinking song. There's the fighting song. There's the making love song. There's dancing. You know, just shaking that thing and moving it. And the fifth is, is, is something to do with... Corporations wanting to uh, control the, the voice of media in order to, to bend people's opinion against cooperating and, and collective thought and organizing themselves in order to keep, keep from being underfunded, under uh, underpaid. The last one is is either the protest uh, or it it is also it, the essence of many blues songs and many songs. That la- that last one is the trick to do it without using. Political and, and and big words is is a trick, and I I quite often just have a song that follows one of the first four categories, and then the second or third verse will deal with the with the fifth category.
0: Well, I think you do it in an effective way though, because a lot of these songs which try to make a message, you know, they're a bit overt, they're a bit in your face. Where you do it very subtly, it's just a little punchy line. And thanks, I didn't, I wasn't sure if anybody noticed. <laughs> so your your album uh, two thousand eight or all three? What what was it? you had an one and two and an all three? What 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 was that naming about? I wasn't sure how long
1: I could go with it, eh? And uh, so I just started counting them,
0: and uh, yep. then
1: I realized after three, journalists are going to get really.
0: Yeah, and so and then you, on that all three album you did Low Rider, which is a real classic from uh, from War and Lee Oscar playing on a moniker on there. <laughs>
1: Every, every tomb i've i've desecrated every shrine <laughs> Lee oscar i met him in the um in the 90s when i was uh in los angeles and i think where he was out in pasadena or somewhere but he drove in because we'd spoken on the f- telephone and he drove in and gave me a box of his harps you know with, on the agreement that i'd played his harps and and uh, they were great harmonicas, and I was already all over them. And he brought me the, the little set of tuning things, his toolkit, and that blew my mind. I can open it up and actually fix the damn thing. So, so good. And what a gent, what a sweet guy. <laughs> and I said, okay, okay, come on into the gig. It was a really big gig we were playing. Come on to the gig, and, and I'll take you backstage. And he goes, nah, I don't like all that smoozing stuff. And he, he just took off. Yeah. So he's, he was a private and, Quieter guy, with, who had already done his a lot of his his fun, wasn't going to waste his time in there. He was just real nice to me, and I played his harps. I played his harps for a bunch of years.
0: Yeah, know he's a nice guy. I've had him on the podcast. Yeah, I've obviously, he's done very well business-wise with the harmonica. So, do you do you customize your harmonicas? Then, there uh, you got the you got the toolkit. Is that something you do?
1: I can knock out the bits of food. I can tune a reed back to pitch if 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 it ain't broke. And I can sort of tweak it for uh, some very rudimentary overblowing. That's as far as I've gone. Customize is uh, I do know. Uh, customize. I no, I don't do that. Now Sadal, great guy from uh, Bertram, he called me up five or ten years ago and and uh, said, "Love it, let me send you a couple of harmonicas." And uh, yeah, and, and bless him, he sent me some some cool stuff because he he knew right away that I was playing the low keys. And I, most of my tunes are in low, just because it, it it works more of a like a rhythm instrument. If it's not it's not tweeting, it's not like a you know it's like one man band with a voice and trumpet. It's not oh, no. Yeah. You want it just a little lower, so you want you want it around the voice or or below the the voice to keep keep rhythm, like working like a rhythm instrument. So he knew I was playing the lower the lower uh, keys, eh? And he he sent me a couple of those, and and they were just find dandy and they can fix the reed plates you can take the reed plate off send them in and they'll repair them for relatively cheap and so to bless them they're they've been my uh, harmonica
0: allies for a good many years now Getting on to your to the big song we were talking about. So you had a song which featured in uh, Season 3, Episode 11 of Breaking Bad, which is Shake a Bone, yeah? So how did that come about?
1: Yeah, that's really weird. And I put myself through the agony of watching that whole series. I'm not sure you want to dedicate so much of your life to watching it. I, I did it because they told me my song was in there. I didn't know when. <laughs> right? I didn't really do the research. I could have just jumped Fast-forwarded to that scene and listened to the song in there. But I didn't. I just started the beginning of series and watched until there's Jesse and uh, Walter in their camper van, like an action montage of them cooking meth. And then my song is playing. And I was looking around the room like, why have I left a laptop on or something? Where is, why is my work interrupting my programming? And it took me a few seconds to realize, oh God, my song is playing in the actual television show. You shake They seem to like it. People seem to like it. To me, it seems really strange. Why is my work going on while they're cooking meth? Were you outraged? <laughs> was I outraged?
0: <laughs> no. Again, I was very honoured and grateful. And- well, that song is the, has got by far the most hits for you on Spotify, with over 1.5 million plays on Spotify. So that sort of exposure from a big TV show like that, did, uh, did you see the benefits of that?
1: It gets passed around on Spotify. Yeah, it, it stretched the uh, it stretched the streaming audience far and wide. Uh, you know, I have one fan in every town now.
0: <laughs> so, did they contact you and specifically ask you know for permission to get your song? And I don't know how that one came through. There are people that shop the music, eh? Uh,
1: that do sync, and that they'll take it and shop it around. And it may have come through through one of those uh, agencies that works with label services. It's not like a label, but it was... Everything's changed since the old days where you'd have a, a record label, you'd work 10 years until you were almost dropped dead, and then they'd give you a Cadillac and, and throw you out in the street, and you'd sleep in the Cadillac. That sounded fine back then, but now it's very complicated and difficult. You know, the, the label services will do certain jobs for you if you pay them. So there were, at one point, there was someone shopping, uh, shopping songs around in, in Los Angeles uh, in the early days of Netflix. And so uh, yeah, great. They, they might have brought that one up.
0: Well, you've been immortalized in Breaking Bad, cooking meth. You know, everyone's going to associate you with that forever to come. <laughs> Did you know the program Preacher? no I never saw that one. I was aware you were on that one but yeah go go and tell us about that one yeah
1: that's that's wild it's a hilarious wild crazy thing after the comic called Preacher the f- opening episode ends with uh, my song Voodoo Doll they, they played almost the whole song at the end while these these uh, two bad characters are walking up to a house it's really nice so yeah I love it that one I, I got it I understood why the, like the music really matched the scene
0: so you got blues at the grand in 2013 it um you have know,
1: more players on there drums lady vocals uh yeah uh, great horns uh uh organs it was you know it was the idea of, of uh, putting the the blues band into the grand hotel <laughs> mm-hmm. so blues at the grand and it just it was a more of grand production there there was my little idea there and i had some other themes that were running throughout it i uh it was a lot of a lot of work and i had a, a really good producer friend that i've been working more with lately who helped me all the way through it so Production, and it wasn't something that I could really tour. There's only one or two songs I can sort of play live as a one-man band. I tried to put a band together for it, and we played in Paris at a, the at a Duc de Lombard. Which a, a, we had a residency for three nights at, a, at a, a jazz club there that's really top of the line. But even that was, uh, you know, shoveling money out a window right away. When you're trying to actually mm-hmm. pay grown-up musicians and put them in a hotel... Mm. like these these guys are great players and and they're my friends they're gonna get paid well so right away i just dug a a debt with to make that record because i wanted to and i I love it and i just you know i love the art but i can't tour it i I gotta keep on with the one man band show and you know to be honest people like the one man band show
0: more so, your album Explosive Hit, this is all covers, yeah? And you're doing songs which are well known, songs like Black Betty. Oh, Black
1: Betty, man, man,
0: soul finger you know and you do tequila shit your hips so you're doing these very well known songs i've always got this theory you know that people in like to hear songs that they recognize yeah a lot of the stuff you're doing harmonica instrumentally i think that works really really well on that album
1: that's what the gig is eh at like some point in the set you need to play something that makes everybody go ah this one they drag their honey onto the dance floor to dance oh god here we go you got to do it and so i built up a number of these over the years the tunes that people recognize, either, you know, blues lovers or just pop music lovers. So there's one by Daft Punk, there's ACDC, there's there's Soul Finger, like you say, Pump Up the Jam is on there, man. Everyone's Mm -hmm. uncle busts a move to Pump Up the Jam. And I'd built up a number of these over the years, and so I thought, okay, that's it, it's time to make the covers album.
0: So then your next album, which has got a great name, Music for Cop Shows, uh, I think inspired by your love of the, the, the famous 1970s uh, American cop shows, that was back to doing your own stuff, yeah? And a, a decision to, to go back to your own Yeah, music, and
1: yeah. I needed another sync. I needed the money to come in to keep making records. So mm-hmm. I, I thought, okay, I really need a sync. I, wa- I wish my tunes would be picked up for like television shows. And when I think of television shows, I think of the television shows I watched. In the seventies, eh, so I you know, like old cop shows, you know Sanford and Son and and the the uh, and Quincy and the Rockford files so music for cop shows, yeah, so i I started write these catchy harmonic I thought I'm just going to write a bunch of instrumentals, and I did I, I was like four three or four instrumental things, and i, I was really digging it, but inevitably i i just think, well, maybe I'll just put a couple of words in there. And then the words would start growing, and the lyrics had come. So it it ended up being a lot of songs with a little more uh, melody happening on the harmonica.
0: You've got blues organ in there, which I'd almost describe as a proper blues harmonica song.
1: <laughs> blues organ, that's right. Lots of organ in there. That, that's a real sort of uh, almost a Booker T vibe with, with harmonica in yeah. there. Yeah, me and Jimmy, who, who, who I made the Blues of the Ground
0: with, me and Jimmy uh, co-wrote that one and we had a blast. But since that album, which was released in 2017, you've you've released singles, yeah? So have you made a decision to release singles rather than creating whole albums? It's been a number of singles,
1: yeah, a bunch of them. Now there's two reasons for that. One, nobody puts out albums anymore. (laughs) It's a Spotify thing. It's a frickin' algorithm thing. People stop buying them at shows. People are listening to one song at a time by a band. I started out just stalling for time and enjoying making making tunes with different producers and friends uh, co-writing or writing it all myself and getting you know just just doing it in different ways so it's been a while i I, got to the point i have two albums under my belt now lockdown year as well i've been it's been a learning curve i'm recording so much at home Uh, i wrote a whole record on piano there's harmonica on almost every song But it's uh, sort of written on the piano. That doesn't mean I can play piano well. I had to hire a guy to actually play it better than me. But I wrote all the tunes, wrote all the tunes on a a piano. I think it sounds like 1973, kind of like Dr.
0: John, a little bit Tom Waits, a little bit Billy Joel. Yeah, I look forward to what everyone's coming out with over over the last year, when everyone's been locked up at home, and uh, hopefully we get all these great works coming out. I'm sure we can put your your name to that list. So, uh, and your most recent single, which is out at the moment, or you've been promoting, is is what a life.
1: That's right. There's, there's three singles I made with Tim Gordon. Devil Take My Soul and I Ain't Going to Night Town was another one I did
0: with him and a few others. So I've I've also been been making music with him. An important part of you is about your touring. You're always you're always touring, yeah? and I think you played all around, obviously in Europe and Canada and USA, but also in Australia, South Africa, Uganda, Japan, Cuba. Yeah, it's taking you all around the world, this music. It does. I, I can sort of travel a long way and, and do a couple of shows and come back.
1: Because I'm one guy. So luckily, I, yeah. I take the train to most shows all over the UK and, and France and um, Belgium. Or I can take a, an, an airplane over to uh, Germany and take trains around there. So I love the European experience yes. in that way.
0: I mean, I think you probably play yourself down and what, what I've heard you talk about your own harmonica playing, but I think it's very effective what you do. You know, you do it and you've got, you know, you've maybe in, invented the genre, as we said, about sort of beatboxing harmonica, layered looping harmonica, but it's very effective what you do on harmonica. What do you think about yourself as a harmonica player?
1: Yeah, I'm always humbled when I hear other people play other harmonica well. I'm always a- astounded at, at how, how tight they are, how well they can improvise. How much control they have, uh, the overblowings and the, uh, the tone that they get, the, the gear that they use. Uh, you know, I'm always a bit ragged. I'm trying to do too many things. Eh? Like I'm trying to, I'm trying right. to mix and and uh, write the guitar line and and help out with it or or do the artwork and you know I'm just in a god awful process of of actually self promoting. You know, it's like there just ain't enough hours in the day. For me, I can't imagine some people. They they're they're doing it their way, and f- for decades they're going to be focusing on their one instrument and master it. And uh, I think uh, what I use it for is you know is great rhythm harmonica playing, and then to find those those hooks and melodies. That's what it's for, and it gives and it gives that vibe. And I think Lee yeah. Oscar, I heard him. Uh, was that one on one of, your, one of your podcasts, my friend? It might be. What did he say? He was talking about he's good, and it was always good, a talent for coming up with a melody. Yeah, he did say that to me, yeah. That's right. I was listening to him talking to you about that. He he's he was always good at coming up with a melody that, that adds to the song or makes the song sometimes. Sometimes you don't want to stand out with a big one, but just have a little thing in there to, to pull you from one section to another. And I realized, yeah, oh my God, yeah, that's what I've been trying to do. And you got to decide, it, that melody, is it to be sung or is it to go on the harmonica? Does the harmonica play, play something like the horns or should it play a rhythm supporting a chordal part? Or, you know, what should it be doing? It shouldn't just be given blues licks, you know. <laughs> it's like having another voice uh, that, that sings melody.
0: You've done a few workshops. You recently were at the Harping by the Sea workshop in, uh, workshops in, uh, in Brighton, well, online, but you've been in there before. Uh, you do any more sort of workshops, uh, things like that?
1: I did theirs, their online workshop, and I'd been down, Harping by the Sea, I'd been down to, to do the actual event a few years ago live too. So that's, that's the twice. I'm really late to the game. I never knew uh, harp players other than the few guys that were in my town. I didn't play the blue circuit. Hardly ever do play the blue circuit, so had no contacts. You know, it's been since uh, maybe the last ten years that I start to realize there are great harmonica players out there, and they've heard of Son of Dave. They've heard Son of Dave music, you know, and that's like, oh wow, what a what an honor. That's cool. What I've been doing lately, Neil, is try to try to also make some songs without the looping pedal A or without any. You know, having to layer a bunch of instruments or have a band, just voice and harmonica and a rattle. There'll be a couple of those that yeah. I'll that I'll put out in the next year. I've written a few like that, and that's a joy. I realize it, it's a lovely format: just the harp, just the voice, and you you time things back and forth, and you can you can carry the attention and carry a song like a singer with a with a with a guitar or a piano you can do it if, if you just, if you have uh, the right bits. And of course the other songs on the record will be covered with bells and whistles and, and all farm animals and everything.
0: A question asked ask each time is if you had 10 minutes to practice, what would you spend those 10 minutes doing?
1: This is part of my problem is that I'd, i quite often sit down <laughs> thinking I'm going to practice and I'm going to be a better harmonica player and a better person. And I'm going to really do this. <laughs> but what you ought to do is arpeggiate. So, uh, I start arpeggiating, and within a very short time, I find a combination of four notes that I like, or something. And then I'm right into the just naturally. I start writing a tune around it, and out comes the dictaphone, and I'm writing a song. And I never end up practicing harmonic. <laughs> sometimes, not never, but I usually end up. It, it ends up um, turning into to a song. It just always evolves that way, rather than me. Uh,
0: We've already talked about you know, play saddle harmonicas and, and you're, you're a saddle endorser and you have been for a few years now. And uh, uh, So obviously you play saddle harmonicas exclusively. Uh, any particular type of saddle that you like? Well,
1: I do the 1847. Started with the white plastic combs on there and then I got the wooden lacquered combs and they're just fine with me. They seem to be lasting for years and years. And uh, I use the stainless steel reeds, eh, which last
0: longer. Uh, so I play stainless steel reeds, which stay in tune. And obviously, play, you play the low harmonic because you're playing the, the side, uh, these low range that they have. They've got this ultra low range as well now, haven't they? Is that something that you're using?
1: I haven't needed to uh, go, no, it's not quite that low. I mean, the, the low B flat or low A is. <coughs> It's about as low as I need to go it's
0: around vocal range that's nice you do play some chromatic harmonica don't you have
1: yeah and there might be one on each on one on each record that I, that I try to to use that stiletto and um, Caledonian street I, I liked that one.
0: Key of diatonic. It has a lot to do with the
1: the pitch of your voice, the range. I, I tend to play a lot of low D, low D D uh, D flat, low C, and then back up a uh, low E flat, low F. It's mostly in that range. That way, I can hit like the two two or three octaves of voice. It's uh, it's about. It's a uh, that's a low C. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's as low as you can go, or I can go uh, right now. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You can get two or three octaves out of your voice if you're lucky, and you don't want the
0: harmonica to be around there in the middle. And embouchure, are you, are you puckering a tongue blocking?
1: I was amazed yeah. when I found out that people actually debate and argue about that or is it they care i mean what why wouldn't you do both whatever if there's a slight different effect
0: just on equipment on uh, on amplifiers and, and, and microphones obviously you're pretty portable carrying around do you do you just use a house system or do you use particular amplifiers yeah and- man
1: because i gotta carry 30 kilos of uh, pedals harps percussion clothes yeah. merch snacks all on the train, yeah. Flashing lights, all on the train. It, because of that, I hope they got an amp for me. So for a lot of years, it just it weren't working because the amps sound terrible with harmonica. And then I figured out, duh, get the pedal. I got a Lone Wolf pedal, and that helps a twin, you know, Fender Twin, for instance, to sound a lot better. Mm-hmm. It 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 overdrives yeah. it in the right way, and so you can take uh, the usual guitar amps that they have at gigs. And the pedal will help it sound more like a harp amp. Otherwise, and still, I have little amps, like a little transistor 15-watt Vox amplifier. It's lightweight and tiny. You can drag that around. And again, it's not going to cut across a band. But when you mic it up, it does the job. Uh, And it,
0: it sounds nice. And I've recorded tons with that thing. So last question then, just around your future plans. Obviously, you talked about you're, you're planning to get two albums out and uh, hopefully getting back out playing again soon. Have you got any gigs lined up Man, now? Man, gigs are lining up. Now you've had your jab. You're, you're, you've got the jab passport to get out playing again. I wonder how that's going to go with the
1: jab passport. There's a couple of gigs coming up mm-hmm. even within the next two months if, if all goes as planned. And uh, mm. plenty showing up for September and October.
0: Great. Well, it'll be great to see you uh, getting people back out playing again, yourself included. So, thanks so much for joining me, Son of Dave. It's been great to speak to you. I've been very lucky to be asked
1: to come onto your podcast, which with such an all star, stellar lineup of, of uh, incredible players. So, thank you very much. For-
0: Son of Dave, flippers that so.